that we are involved with and understand and relate to. And so this morning as we talk about the other attributes, I don't believe we're going to have any real difficulty in any of these. The questions of God and our relationship with him are impacted by those absolutely and significantly, every one of his attributes impacting us equally as every other one. But it just is not our experience. And so this morning we continue with this, and remember what we're doing is anchoring everything about God, everything about God in his aseity. And as we have looked at the aseity of God, and we only did it last week as a review. This is a review. These couple of three weeks are a review of 13 weeks. You want the more detail, you're going to have to go back, I think, to the other lessons. But as we look at the aseity of God, we have to remember this. What does aseity mean? It has to do with God's absolute self-existence as God. That nothing else exists as self-existing. Other than God, everything exists having been created. God is the only uncreative being. He is the only one who has, if you would, underived life. His life is who he is. And when we begin to really understand that, that before all things were created, God is. He exists. And as a result of his eternal Existence And even the word eternal is a time word which God creates for our experience. And so when we think about God's love, when we look at our own lives, our own circumstances, when we consider our own feelings and reactions, when we look at our own weaknesses and failures, We must do so within the context of God's aseity. Because, you see, everything else is changeable, and we'll get into that more next week. But God is unchangeable. And as we more and more understand God's aseity, and then look at the attributes that we'll be discussing. I think there are about six or seven of them, if I can remember. Connecting them to his aseity and a result of his aseity and expressions of his aseity. We can begin to be more guarded against the attacks of the enemy when he wants to undermine our faith our faith essentially in what? In God's love for us. Isn't it? In God's love for us. And so all the attacks of life and all the feelings and the emotions and the experiences, I think they touch us in one essential place more than other places. And they raise this question. 
how does this affect God's love for me? What I am experiencing or maybe not experiencing, does that mean that something of God's love is changing? I've heard many people say, I I just don't feel when I pray that I'm connecting with God. I don't feel God's love. And this is normal human experience in the body of Christ. It's not abnormal to have these times of, if you would, non-feeling. And so as we get these kinds of things, or I just did that same thing that I am so prone to do, that sin, I did it again. How does this affect God's love for me? We all struggle in these areas. These are the areas that Satan loves to accentuate, to undermine our experience of the love of God. And so in order to strengthen us us and bolster us and create a greater foundation of experience, because the foundation's there, but experience, knowing that as I stand on and in the aseity of God, I can begin to understand and have a much more mature, stabilized theology and experience and expression of God's love. So it's critical, these background information times. So why does God love us? Remember we said that last week. Why, why does God love us? Remember we talked about that a little bit in Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. But why does God love us? Because God is. He is love. Why does God care about us? Because God is. Why anything about God in relation to our lives? Anything and everything. Why? Because God is. Do we see that? Because we must begin to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to disconnect our understanding of love from ourselves and our own experiences and who we are and how we are and what's going on and reconnect, if you would, God's love where it truly begin, um, needs to be, where is it? In himself. So this morning we're going to talk about three more essential attributes which will help us to better understand God's love. And we've done this before, but it's a review. God's omnipresent. Remember what omni means? What does omni mean? All. It's one of those all words, omnipresence. So what does that mean? God is omnipresent. God is everywhere, all the time, present, comprehensively. That means this, that all of God, how much, Steve? All of God is with us, where, Judy? Right here, when? Right now, all the time. All of God. 100% of God is here. Yet at the same time, 100% of God is over there. 
and 100% of God is also around the corner and down the street. Now, do we really think that way? How many of us, that's difficult to understand, right? Because we are not omnipresent beings. And so there's not a place in all creation. There's not a time in all creation from the very beginning to the very end of the old creation and even into the new where God is not fully present. Everywhere we go, where's God? Everything we do, where's God? He's always here. He's always here. You see, there is no place in all creation where God is not fully present all the time. Remember Psalm 139, 7, I have it, part of it written here. O Lord, O Yahweh, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Where? Nowhere. Wherever I go, where's God? He says, if I ascend into heaven, where's God? If I descend into Sheol, where's God? He's everywhere. And not just some of him is everywhere. 100% of our God is 100% present 100% of the time. Omnipresent. So God being omnipresent was really a foreign concept in the day that these scriptures were written. You know, you know enough, I think, of history that every country had its own what they call local deities. The Babylonians had theirs, the Egyptians had theirs, the Assyrians, et cetera, et cetera. They all had their local deities. And so when an army or the king or whoever traveled from place to place, or when they went to battle, they took the statues of their local deities with them to make sure that their local deity is coming along with them. You see, because if they don't have this little local carving then it may mean that the local deity's back home and I'm over here without my local deity. And if I don't have my local deity, I'm in trouble. And so when one country conquers another, in their minds, what was happening? My gods are stronger than your gods. My local deity has conquered your local deity. There was no concept at all of a single God who is everywhere present all the time, 100%. This is absolutely a foreign concept, except in Judaism. Why did the Jews have a concept of God this way? Where did it come from? From whom? From the God who is who revealed himself to them. So you see, God is not a local deity. And so when Moses says, and remember Exodus chapter 3, the Lord says, I want you to go and I'm going to use you to deliver the people. And he says, what local deity are you? Because Moses, remember, was raised in Egypt. All these local deities. What is your name? Why does he ask his name? 
I want to know your character. I want to know your, your nature. I want to know your plan. I want to know your power. All that is mixed up in the name, the presentation of this local deity. And so in Exodus 3.14, what does the Lord answer? Tell them that what? I am. In other words, I am. Wherever you are, I am. Whatever is happening in your life, I am. Wherever you go, I am with you, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a timelessness, if you would, in that name. And so because God is omnipresent, because of that, remember the words of Jesus, the promise of Jesus in Matthew 28, 20? First, he says what? All authority in heaven and earth, remember in verse 18, has been what? Given unto me. Go ye therefore into all the world, baptizing all nations in the name of the Father and the Son, and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the command. In verse 20, what's the promise? And behold, what? I am with you always, even when, unto the end of this age. He's declaring his omnipresence with us. So because God is a God of love, because God is omnipresent, that means God's love being an attribute of God. And we said that every essential attribute is equally present in and significant to who God is. Because God is omnipresent, what does that mean about his love? What about his love? His love is also what? Omnipresent. So Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an omnipresent love. Omnipresent love. So what does that mean? When did God's love for us begin? Now, you see, you have to make sure what context. In the essential context, when did God's love for us begin? It always has been. Why? Because God is omnipresent, always has been, and will always be who he is. Therefore, his attributes are always his attributes. They've always been this way. So when did God begin to love me? When did God begin to love you? When? Always. When did we experience it is when we were saved. But you see, God doesn't begin to love us because we said, Jesus, save me. Because God has always loved us. His love has always been omnipresent. Because of that, we can say, Jesus, forgive me. Because the Holy Spirit, as we read in Ezekiel 36, comes into my life and changes my stony, rejecting, unbelieving heart to a heart of saying yes to give me the experience of God's everlasting, omnipresent love. And as I experience that, come on in, ladies, grab a chair somewhere. It's all right. As I experience God's love, that causes me to ask for forgiveness or to receive forgiveness, however you express it. But let's break this understanding that is false. God loves me because I first loved him. 
Isn't that the opposite of what the apostle tells us? For this is love, not that we first love, remember John, 1 John 4, not that we first love God, but that he what? Loved us. And so, once more, when did God begin to love you? He always has. He always has. Before the foundation of the world, before he created any of us, we were in his heart and mind and plan. We were the children of his love. And he creates all things in order to manifest his love in us, his created and beloved people, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's what Genesis 1.26 tells us, that we've been created to be in the image of God. Now, why do I take so much time with this? Because we need to make sure that God's love for us and the activity of his love in us is a result of his omnipresence. It has nothing, what, may I repeat that word, Troy? It has nothing whatsoever. May I say it one more time, Isaac? God's love for me has nothing whatsoever to do with me, essentially, about who I am and how I am and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it and how many times I'm going to do it and whether I'm going to do it this way or that way or what. It has nothing to do. It is who he is. Who he is. And we must have that freedom from looking at me in order to be able to receive the abundance of this love that God has for us. So, sissy, why does God love you? Because he is. Bob, why does God love you? He is. Let me move along. God is omni, uh, omni. Oh, by the way, if you have any question about this, read Romans 8, 35 and 39. The apostle says, what shall separate us from the love of God? Do you hear omnipresence in that, Gail? Where can we go? What can you do to separate you from the love of God? Yes, Debbie, what can you do? Nothing. What did you do to earn it? Did you obey to get God's love? No. We received it. Can you disobey to break his love? You see, his love is who he is. And he's omnipotent, as a friend of mine had said one time, omnipotent. This means God is all-powerful. But let's make sure we understand about God's power. God is all-powerful to do whatever he wills to do that is in keeping with or according to his nature and his character. He never does anything at all that is not in keeping with his nature and his character. Because that would be a denial of who he is. 
So when we say God is all-powerful, we must make sure we understand it within the context of who he is essentially in his own being. God is all-powerful. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Our Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth. We used to sing this. And your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. Remember, Jesus quotes this. Is there anything too difficult for God? Is there anything? God's omnipotence means that all of God's will shall come to pass. What God wills, he has the power to do what? To make it come to pass. What comes to pass is what God wills and decrees. You see, some folks say, well, God knows what you're going to do because he knows the future, right? He's in the future already, isn't he, A.J.? He's in the future. He's already there. He's in the past. He's in the present, as far as we understand present, because he is. And so because God knows the future, Phyllis, he knows what you're going to do, therefore he whatever. Essentially, he doesn't know what you're going to do because he knows the future, although he does know the future. But that's not the essence of what's happening here. He knows what you're going to do because he decrees it. We are the people of his creation. Our steps, our ways are ordered by the Lord. Now, that's a confusing thing. That's a confusing thing. And don't let, ask me to go beyond that. But what happens is according to God's omnipotent decrees and his will. There's nothing in this universe that is happening outside of God's active will. You notice I didn't say permissive will. Yes, there is a permissive will, but it is in accord with the active will. And I don't get this. I don't understand it. If you need to understand it, ask Evan May. David Batten will be able to tell you, but don't come to me. I don't get this. I don't get it. It's confusing. It's, I don't get it. But I know it's true. I know it. God decrees. In Revelation, he calls himself the Almighty. He is called the Almighty nine times in Revelation. Completely, absolutely, comprehensively, totally power within himself. It's not so much that God has power. God what? Is power. And because God is power, therefore he exercises his power. And so where is God? Everywhere. And where is the exercise of his power? Wherever God is, he's exercising his power. So remember, we don't want to separate these. We want to see them as a cohesive unit. And the greatest demonstration of God's omnipotence is in the creation. But after the creation, where is the greatest demonstration of God's omnipotence? In the incarnation. In the incarnation. Where God the Son takes to himself a human body and soul. Why? Because as in one man, sin entered the world. Therefore, what? In another man, sin must be paid for so that God's will for his people may be accomplished. So that we may be the living demonstration of God's love. 
Every aspect about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus is an example of God's omnipotence by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember in Luke 4.14, and Jesus came out of the wilderness, what? Filled with the omnipotence of God. He was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul says about God's power. In Romans 31, 33, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered us over him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And because God's, God is omnipotent, what about his love? What about his love? Is God's love all-powerful? So because of that, Paul can say in Philippians 1.6, you remember what Philippians 1.6 says? I am persuaded of this one thing, what? That he who has begun a good work, the work of salvation, that he who has begun a good work in us will what? Will, not maybe, hopefully will what? Bring it to completion when? On the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, he will reveal it as completed in the return of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Do you have confidence that God's love in you, God's love for you, is strong enough to keep you to the utter end to the return of Jesus? Or are there things happening in our lives? Are we doing things and experiencing things? Are we sinning? Are we missing the mark? Are we experiencing weaknesses that say to me, Bridget, maybe, maybe God's plan for me won't succeed. Maybe he won't be able to carry it out into the end because I have, I have, and you see the reason why he won't, Donnie, is because of me. Do you see how I creep in there? Haven't we struggled with that sometimes? I hope that God still loves me because of what I or whatever. Is God's love an omnipotent love? Is his love capable of bringing to full, absolute completion that which he has already begun in us? Yes or no? And in fact, if he does not do it, then is he consistent in his will for us? No. He said, I will do it. But he didn't say, Phyllis, I'll do it if you do these three things and I'll do it. He didn't say that. You see, the basis of God's doing what he's doing in us is because he's already done it in his son as a human being. And that completed work in his people has already been completed perfectly in the son of God who now stands at the right hand of the Father forever and ever and ever as our advocate, as the one who represents us in himself. And as long as Jesus remains before the throne of God, we will be kept in the love of God.
And who's going to throw Jesus out? What is going to overcome Jesus? Where is what, what is what power is great enough to come in and usurp the presence of this man in heaven? And so as he is in heaven forever by the power of God, Hebrew says by the power of an everlasting and dominable life, the power of God. As he is there, we are there with him and in him. Amen. And you see, we are kept there because of his power, not because of or in spite of something in or about ourselves. So when the devil, when, not if, but when the devil comes a tippy-toeing in and tries to begin to knock on your door and scratch on your windows and tell you all the things and how many times you've done it and what you should have not done and remind you of all this and that and the other thing and your failings and all your weaknesses, he's trying to undermine your faith in the fact that God's love is as omnipotent as this almighty God is. And if it is not, then God himself is not omnipotent. So if you question the power of God, then you question the power of God's love. You question the power of God. Now, you may do so, but then you ask the Holy Spirit to give you understanding and truth. Is God omnipotent? Is God's love omnipotent? Will God's love accomplish what his will has determined it will accomplish. Why? Because it's omnipotent. He's also omniscient. <clears throat> he knows everything at once, comprehensively. Everything. He knows everything at once. How much of your sin and my sin does God know? Is there any sin that is hidden from him? So think for a moment. Now think for a moment. Think it out. Patsy, before you were created in your mother's womb. Now listen to what this is about Patsy because, Cody, it's the same for you. Listen to what about Patsy. Before Patsy was conceived, are you with me? Before she was conceived, God knew Everything about Patsy Frischnick. He knew every detail to the smallest molecule, whatever it all is in her life. He knew every heartbeat. He knew every hair coming out of her head. He knew how many times she would blink in her days. Is there anything about Patsy Frischnick? that God did not know before Patsy was even conceived? Yes or no? No. Because he's, his knowledge is comprehensive. Nothing's left out. And so when Patsy is conceived and when she's born, she is born with this declaration over her, just as the rest. She is by nature a child of wrath, remember? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, a child of wrath. Why? Because she's born with original sin and to sin by nature. 
that means that Patsy Frushnick is going to begin sinning from the first opportunity she has to the very last opportunity that she has on earth. She's going to start sinning. How many of her sins are known personally by God himself? All of them. Is any left out? None. Now, omniscience is a hugely freeing thing because I can't hide anything from God. I can't lie to God. I can't dissemble. I, you know, I, I can't pretend. I can't do that. God knows it all. And in fact, he not only knows that I sin, he knows why I sin. And most of the time, I'm not even sure why I sin because Jeremiah says, you don't even know your own heart. You see, Clara, you don't know why you just did that. All you know is that you did it. But you don't know the essence of it. But God does. Omniscient. Now, if God himself is omniscient, And when is he omniscient? All the time. When did his omniscience begin? It had no what? Beginning. When will it end? It has no ending. So, because he is omniscient, therefore his love also is omniscient. In love, he predestined us as children, remember, to be saved by the blood of the Lamb, correct? So in his omniscience, at the cross, when Jesus dies and he says in John 19.30, it is paid in full, it is finished, sin is paid for. Every sin that God knew that you are and would commit, everyone he knew about, he forgave. Everyone you, he knew about, he did what? He forgave. What does it mean? That every sin has been paid for. And if everything sin has been paid for, it is unjust. And we'll talk about justice next time. It is unjust for God to come back to us and require any penalty or payment whatsoever for any sin at all. Because Jesus has paid for every sin that God knows about, and he knows every sin. Therefore, that means this, that if I sin today, I can be assured of God's forgiveness, not because I said I'm sorry. I say I'm sorry because I've been forgiven. I repent because I've been forgiven. Repentance is not about being forgiven. It is, being, it is receiving the good and the power of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, of corruption, and defilement in me. But my sin is forgiven in Christ. When was my sin forgiven? In God eternally it always has been because his love for me. And it was accomplished at a particular time in, 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 you know, in creation at the cross. But you see that. God is omniscient. <clears throat> so suppose tomorrow you sin, Mary, and you're going to sin. And that's the 38th time you did it in one day. How much of our sin tomorrow does God know about? And how much is loved and forgiven? <clears throat> Do you see how understanding God's attributes 
begins to better inform his love for us. Do you feel disconnection from the way you have been living and I have been living too connected with life about and for me and not enough connected about love, our life in Christ because of who God is? Therefore, because God is omniscient, Romans 8, 1 is true. What does it say? Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation. Suppose tomorrow you sin and you die before you confess it. You sin, you do that thing wrong, and then all of a sudden you have a heart attack and die right there before you confess it. Are you forgiven? Are you forgiven? There are people who teach that if you don't repent of sin and confess a sin as a believer, you're not forgiven. Well, I don't see that. If I sin it, and we're not giving credence to sinning. I've obviously, hopefully you know that. But if I sin today and I don't repent of it, God already knew that. And that sin and that lack of repentance is paid for at the cross. Can you get it? Now, will God deal with it? And will he bring correction to me and adjustment and discipline? Yes. Yes. But can we leave that with God rather than trying to pin on God an injustice which is contrary to his nature? So is God's love omnipresent? Is it omnipotent? Is it an omniscient love? Yes. Romans 5, 5. For the love of God has been shared abroad or poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Next week, we'll talk about the immutability of God, God's love, the sovereignty of God's love. And I think we'll, yes, get, we may not get into the righteousness. It just depends on how we do. So think about these things. So when the devil, did you hear what I said? When the devil attacks you this week, pull out this lesson on him. Amen. So good to see you today.